Well, good evening, church. Welcome to our Sunday night teaching time. We're working through the parables. Lessons from heaven for life on earth. This is part four. An interesting text tonight, Matthew 25, 31 to 46. So get your Bibles. I'm calling this when the Son of Man comes in his glory. And you'll notice a couple of really interesting things when we get into this parable. It's a little different from the parables we've studied. Matthew 25, 31. Let's study together. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And just pause there for a minute. I'm thinking about that phrase. A lot of people have a hard time with the concept. Um, you'll notice at the end of the parable of the talents, the one talent person, the same phrase used. He's put into this place where there's the fire and torment. And here, Jesus says that those on his left, they will go into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And a lot of people think, what kind of picture is this? Is this to be taken seriously? Surely Jesus can't be talking about a real literal hell. And the interesting thing about that is, he says, it's not just into a place of eternal fire. He says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And there's a place where that's talked about. I know I'm kind of interrupting the flow here, but if you go to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 20, you can read about this, where it talks about the fire coming down from heaven and consume them, and the devil who had deceived them. This is after the millennium, however you interpret the millennium. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet were, they were cast in there long before this, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So this is what's going to happen to the devil, the beast, the false prophet. There's this place where clearly the Bible says they're going to be tormented forever. They're going to be tormented forever. Now, in, our, in, in this account that Jesus is talking about here, he talks about people being 
cast into this place of eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So we know it's talking about the very same place that Revelation 20 talks about, because that's where the devil ends up. And now Jesus is saying, this place was prepared for the devil. And then he tells these people on his left, they're going to end up in the same place. So, so somehow you got to make those two things work together. Either the devil doesn't really get cast into the lake of fire, and they really aren't tormented forever and ever, but Revelation 20 says absolutely that they are. And Jesus, who doesn't lie, God the Son says these people end up in that place. They end up in the same place. Yeah, but these are physical people. Well, the devil and his angels, those are all created beings. Like there's, there's an exact similarity there. So I just don't know how you explain that away is all I'm saying. All right, let's continue. He will say to those on his left, 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And then they will answer, they'll say the same thing. Lord, 44, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me and these will go away, says it twice, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I guess I need to say something right up front, right off the bat. Strictly speaking, this passage doesn't belong in an account of the parables. The only uh, parabolic imagery really is the reference that Jesus makes to a shepherd and sheep and goats in 32 and 33. But the rest of it, this doesn't start off, you notice, it doesn't start off saying the kingdom of heaven is like. No, this is a factual account. The reason I'm studying it here is because it kind of sums up the message of the preceding parables of judgment. The parable of the talents. Remember the one talent person? In that parable, he ends up cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here we have an account from the teaching of Jesus of what will actually take place. It's not a parable. What will actually take place when he comes again to judge the world. So so because it's not, for the most part, a parable, but an account, um, it's important that we get this. This is not something like what might happen when Jesus comes back. This is what Jesus wants to leave in his final story in his public ministry. This is the last public lesson Jesus gave. What he wants to do is say, this is exactly like what's going to happen when he comes again. So I have three or four thoughts. Let's go over them together. Point number one. In Jesus' account of the future of the world, there is this great a fork in the road, a great separation coming. You see it in 31, 32, and 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. Okay, this isn't just for like, uh, you know, evangelical North America. 
This is for all the nations on earth, all the religions on earth, all the people who have ever been created. They're going to be here. That's what Jesus is saying. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. So this will be uh, such a huge public spectacular event that the only word to picture it is the one Jesus himself chooses. He uses it twice. He says it's going to be glorious in that 31st verse. The Son of Man will come in his glory. He will sit on his glorious throne. There's no other way to talk about it. Everybody will be standing with their mouths open. The Bible says that every mouth will be stopped. I take that to mean people will be speechless. The event will knock everyone to his or her knees. Every knee will bow, Paul says. Excuses will be silenced. Arguments will be silenced. Everything will evaporate. So the text says there will be a gathering, all the nations, and then there will be a separating. 32, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another. So first gathered everybody, so no one's left out, and then separated, so everyone is dealt with individually. Some will go to his right, some will go to his left, but very simply, the crowd will not stay all together. They won't all be in the same place. They won't all receive the same words from Jesus. They won't all receive the same treatment. So whatever else is tricky in this passage, that much is crystal clear. Let me just say, it makes no difference to me how many authors of near-death experiences write about going through a tunnel and heading toward a bright light and feeling serenity and peace. It makes no difference to me that in most of those books, everyone ends up going to the same place and has the same experience. I don't care how many angels of light come up with different stories or how popular those accounts become. Here's what Jesus said. He says there'll be a separation, a great division when he comes to judge the world. I think that's something we should never forget. Here and now, there's an element of false security in the fact that people can lose themselves in a crowd very much like themselves. There's no pressure to change. There's no pressure to act. No threat of penalty for just going along with everybody else. But Jesus says, you see, on, on that day, it will all be so different. There will be public reward or immense public shame Nothing will be done discreetly. All the nations will be gathered, 32, and somehow nations will be sifted down to individuals. He will say to each one, the text says. So it, it indicates somehow that Jesus will speak, will speak to me individually. We're so used to the freedom to choose that we presently possess, aren't we? We can't imagine that coming to an end. We can choose to live for the Lord. A lot of people do. We can choose to live for ourselves. More people do. We're free to choose how passionate, how devoted we will be to Christ and his cause. We're free to choose how we will use our money, how we will use our time. We can freely choose to live with all sorts of compromise. 
that opportunity to choose, that opportunity to set my own course. It just appears to be limitless in this world. And then, and then the curtain comes down and, and Jesus tells of a coming time when all of that freedom comes to a jolting end, a surprising end. There'll be this separating that will set eternal destiny. That separation will be decided for us. All our decision-making comes to an end when Jesus comes again. So cut it any way you like. Jesus is, he's warning us. Remember, this is his last public teaching. Don't forget this. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't pretend this won't happen. We're to ponder it carefully. Okay, point number two. Here's something surprising, I think. And I want to explain a little bit of it because I think people get confused by it. In this account, Jesus says judgment will be based on our actions rather than our beliefs. And we need to talk about that a little bit. I think it's surprising to many. And Jesus repeats this truth Two times. So look at, first look at 34 to 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So what's going to get them in there? 35. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. In prison, you came to me. Okay, then he's going to say the same thing again on the negative side. Look at 41 to 43. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, the one talked about in Revelation 20, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. So there's just no escaping this point. Separation is determined on the basis of what people do and what they don't do. In this account, there's no mention of the beliefs of these people. And that raises some really important questions for Christians like we. Does it matter what we believe? What about, what about verses like, except you believe that I am he? You will die in your sins, Jesus says. Or what about believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? I mean, are people saved by faith? Or in this account, are they saved by their works? And if they're not saved by works, then how come they're judged by works? Like for a lot of Christians, this issue raised by these words of Jesus, it's, it's just a, a theological confusion. I mean, some Christians feel the Bible gives two messages at the same time. Here in today's text, Jesus says he'll separate and judge the world by the things they do and the things they don't do. And yet in other places, he says, come unto me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. No works. But look at John 5, 28, 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Listen, those who have done good 
to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now it's works. Or look at the teaching of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's noted for his great defense of justification by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Look at 9. Not the result of works. Are you kidding me? Look what Jesus says here. But then look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Works. Whether good or evil. I mean, make up your mind. Which way are we going here? The point is, Jesus and Paul are not contradicting themselves and they're not contradicting each other. The problem The problem is in our understanding of certain words. We are saved by grace. We are not saved by works. But if we're not saved by works, how come we're judged by works? Over and over again. And the whole Bible gives the same consistent, correct, unified answer to that question. Works, deeds, are the only possible result of genuine grace received. I'm not saved by works, never can be. But my profession of salvation by grace can never be unaccompanied by the transforming power of that grace in the fruit of good deeds. Pastor Don, I thought we were saved by grace alone. No argument for me, we are. We are saved by grace alone. The real question is, what what does grace do? When it enters my heart. Look at Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 14. This is maybe the best passage to clear this all up. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. There. Grace for all people. Came in Christ. What does it do? 12. Training us. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And here is the problem. When we think of grace, we think of only one thing. We think of forgiveness. And that's preciously true. Grace does not just bring forgiveness. Never. Grace of God has appeared training us. Grace trains us. Grace makes us godly. 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. That's what this account in Matthew 25 is about. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. He's God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us. Okay, we like that word redeem, don't we? Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, listen, zealous for good works. The problem is we're so naturally inclined to think of works 
as the opposite of grace. And they are, they are, if I'm using my own works to earn God's satisfaction apart from the atoning work of Christ on the cross. But for those who profess salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, works are not the opposite of grace. Works are the fruit of grace. The cherished, loved, preferred fruit of grace. This is why Jesus says he will look at the works of the people. He will assess the reality of their faith by their deeds, their righteous deeds can't undo the foundation of free grace in their lives. It's it's right here in this account. Look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. It's an inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance. These people didn't earn the kingdom with their righteous deeds. The kingdom was passed on freely, like any inheritance. But the deeds demonstrated that they were, in fact, the Father's children. Come, you blessed of my Father, 34. They were recipients of grace, and it transformed their lives, as grace always does. Okay, point number three. It's kind of striking, this part. In this account, the part of the life receiving divine attention wasn't the part we normally perceive as the religious part. I mean, both with those being rewarded on the right and those being judged on the left, attention was focused on, notice, on things so small that neither crowd remembered doing them. No chart was produced of their offerings over the years. They weren't tested on whether or not they could recite the books of the Bible. They weren't asked whether they could attend prayer meetings. Aren't those things important? Yeah, they're very important. Don't they count for eternity? Yes, they do count for eternity. Then then why does Jesus pick these obscure, forgotten, unnoticed events that were done when they weren't even thinking about them? I'll tell you why. This hits the issue right on the head. It's the unguarded moments of my life. It's the actions done when no one seems to be paying much attention. The righteousness that sustains its own life outside the church walls. That's what shows what's really in my heart. Not just what I do in the sanctuary where everybody's watching me. The unstudied portion of our lives reveals the lordship of Jesus. And and that's where kingdom reality shines most brightly. It's the part of my life that shows what's happening in the sanctuary is really changing my life outside the sanctuary. So this account from the life of the lips of Jesus is, it's really important. It not only ends the chapter, and here's why we're studying it, though it's not a parable. We're studying it because it sums up the previous two parables. Remember the parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids, the foolish that just had their lamps lit but didn't bring any oil. So it's not enough that at one time in my distant past, my lamp 
of devotion to Jesus was burning brightly. No, it's the ongoing lifestyle. It has to be maintained. It has to be burning the day the king comes back. Or the parable of the talents. We took two Sundays on that. It's, it's not enough that I've been given talents by my master. It's not enough that I received at some time in the past something from his hand. He's looking for faithful stewardship. And you can't bury the one talent in the ground. That's what brought judgment. And so this account of the judgment, it really sums up the parable of the wise and foolish bridemaids, the parable of the talents. And after the storytelling is over, after those parables are finished, Jesus tells us clearly and plainly that he is going to judge all of our lives, that people will be separated like sheep and goats. And the separation won't just be between people who profess something and people who didn't profess something. It won't be measured by that. Jesus remembers the things that make up my daily life. It's kind of like, it's kind of like staying in a hotel, you know, you find a cheap hotel, it's 80 bucks a night, four nights, there you go, 320 bucks. Then you get to your bill and it's closer to $425 and you can't figure out why. And you go, oh yeah, I forgot about the tax. And then as you look closely, you see, oh yeah, there were those phone calls that I made that I forgot about. Oh, yeah, there was that evening when I had to have some cake and ice cream in the coffee shop. Oh, yeah, and then there was that morning when I ordered toast and coffee and had it brought up to the room. Oh, and there was that fax I sent. You weren't even thinking about it. The hotel remembers everything. So this is what Jesus said it'll be like on Judgment Day. And and there's a lesson here. There's a lesson here. There's a tremendous advantage in confessing Christ Jesus as Lord in a way that gets refreshed every day in my life. There's this great wisdom of allowing all sin to sting in my heart into immediate repentance. There's wisdom in listening to the Spirit, getting into the Word every day, So you remember your walk with Jesus. Boy, Pastor Don, that's a really scary passage of Scripture. And here we all sit. What if I can't even remember all the things that I should have brought to the Lord a long time ago? What, What hope do I have? What chance do I have when Jesus comes again? And the Bible actually has a good answer to that question. Here's how I want to close. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the stuff you remember and the stuff you don't. So stay close to Jesus every day. Keep confession alive and warm in your heart. Always respond while your heart is still alert. Hiding sin is the deadly thing. Forgetting about it can cost you your soul one day. But if you confess it now, forsake it completely, Jesus will clean more of your life than you imagined. He looks at your desire to be clean and he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the beauty of the gospel. It can cleanse your heart and it can train your heart for good deeds. Always remember the second coming.
Always remember the second coming of Jesus. Let's pray. What a great text. Thank you for such honest words. Lord Jesus, from your lips, recorded accurately in your word. What a miracle that the Holy Spirit has left for us. And so much has changed. The way we, the way our transportation has changed, communication has changed, technology has changed. But what hasn't changed is it's all coming to an end and you will return. Keep our hearts riveted to that truth, relying on your mercy and grace and pursuing your kingdom with all our strength. I ask it in Jesus' name and I thank you. Amen. God bless the church. Love one another.